thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. If you've ever seen photographs of the rows and rows of old military aircraft parked in the southern Arizona desert, you too may think that facility is simply a junkyard where used up or outdated military aircraft go to die. In fact, the organization in charge of those aircraft and the facility itself are so much more as we learn this week on the Fighter Pilot Podcast with our guest, United States Air Force Colonel Jennifer Barnard. I really like that you're here to share the word that we're so much more than a boneyard, as people like to call us, because not only do we store aircraft, we reclaim parts from aircraft, we regenerate airplanes, make them flyable again. But what folks don't know is that we also uh, do depot level maintenance and modifications to the aircraft as well. Welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here is your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello. Hello and welcome to the show, everyone. This is episode 77. I am your host, Jello. And despite what you just heard on that sound clip before the music, we are, in fact, titling this episode The Boneyard. But we have our guest's permission, as you will learn on the interview, coming up in just a few moments. I hope everyone is doing okay and surviving these highly unusual times is probably the understatement of the century as we continue to struggle with the COVID-19 worldwide pandemic. As for me, the family and I were doing fine. We were hunkered down in San Diego, but then I was assigned a five-day airline rotation, flying mostly empty airplanes to mostly deserted airports between New York City, Las Vegas, and even all the way out to Hawaii, which would normally be great, but eh, it wasn't that fun, actually. Anyway, I've been quarantined now for a few days in my late father's home in L.A. My wife said I've got to do that before she'll let me back in the door. So definitely strange times, and I hope you all are coping okay. But whatever you're facing, consider this. There are over 5,000 men and women, including previous guests on this show, who deployed aboard a U.S. Navy aircraft carrier in January and are, as right now of this recording, approaching the 90-day mark without a single port visit. And in fact, they may spend their entire deployment underway, which could last six months or longer. Now, to put that in context, when you're underway, you're working pretty much every day. I mean, you can take a little break here and there, but you are stuck. You're working. As I've said before on other shows, maybe it was this one, I don't remember. It's Particularly for the air crew, it's like being in a fun jail. You get to go flying, but you're still stuck. You do what they tell you. You eat what's being served. And a port visit every 30 days or so is what kept me sane on my five deployments. So I don't know how these guys and gals are going to do it, but my heart certainly goes out to them. Anyway, let's see. So we've got some announcements and some listener questions. First off, we began a new Facebook group. It's called The Ready Room. And as the name implies, it's a place to just hang out and discuss the latest episode or other show matters or even just military aviation in general. In fact, there's only a couple things we don't want discussed. And those are part of the questions that you have to answer to be admitted. We always like you to spend a little time to get in the door so that we don't just get bots and random folks showing up. 
Also, on that five-day airline rotation I just told you about, I flew with a captain who, like me, was a former Navy fighter pilot. But check out the aircraft he flew, the F-14, the A-4, the F-16N, the F-A-18, and the F-5, among other trainers, of course. And on the layover in Las Vegas with not much else to do on lockdown, I bought a six-pack at the gas station next door. We sat in the empty hotel lounge and did what we would normally do, which is sit and have a refreshment and talk flying. But for fun, I put lapel mics on both of us and recorded it. And I threw the two-hour unedited conversation on Patreon for our listeners who support the show, and it met rave reviews. They love it. Might try to do more of that in the future. If you want to check it out, head on over to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and search for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, and you can check that out. Now, last episode, I shared a heartfelt email that drew a lot of response. I want to share another one with you this week. The writer states, I just wanted to take the time to reach out and thank you for all that you and the whole Fighter Pilot Podcast team have done for the past two plus years. I've been an avid listener since episode one and since then have applied for and been offered a commission in the Navy as an aviator. At the time of this writing, March 23rd, 2020, the COVID-19 pandemic has actually barred me from going to officer candidate school, which I was supposed to report for yesterday. They decided that candidates from various states, including New York, where I would be traveling from, are to be postponed indefinitely. While disappointing, I'm still excited for when it is safe enough for me to begin my career in the United States Navy. Now, for the part where you and yours were invaluable in getting to where I am now, the entire process from first speaking to a recruiter to actually having accepted the offer and swearing in took just over a year. This is what I've wanted to do since early high school, but during the application, I was met with several obstacles, mostly bureaucratic in nature. I was nearly discouraged a few times by these obstacles, thinking that I must not be right for the job if it was so difficult for me to just simply put an application together. However, the Fighter Pilot Podcast all the while was constantly in my ear, reminding me just what I was after and how to quit before I even tried would have been detestable. For this, I thank you and everyone who kept this passion at the forefront of my mind since January 2018. Well, this email is a huge blessing to me, and I hope it encourages you, listener, whatever obstacles or setbacks you may be facing, which I'm sure are more now than they were months ago. So thanks to all those who send in supportive and encouraging emails. We really appreciate them, and we'll probably read more in the future. All right, time for some questions. Now, last episode, I commented that some of the listener questions have gone unanswered because, frankly, I just didn't know the answers. Well, one of those I mentioned was related to fuel. And in fact, it was submitted last October from Kevin Ham from Boston, Massachusetts. And he says, I hear when reading older books about World War II planes, the TBM Avenger comes to mind, about self-sealing or self-healing fuel tanks. How did or does that technology work? Is it still in use today? Well, check out this answer from listener Gilbert Madrid. He provided this for us. Hey, Jello, Gilbert here. I'm currently a civilian F-16 hydraulics mechanic for the 573rd Aircraft Maintenance Group here at Taylor Force Base. I'm hoping to shed some light on a listener question you have about self-sealing fuel tanks. I'll try to keep it concise, but to better understand how they work, I'll briefly describe their construction. A self-sealing tank is actually called a fuel cell. I like to think of it as a really thick rubber bag that fits in a cavity of an airframe. It normally consists of four primary layers. Uh, going from the inside out, we have our inner liner, which is rubber or nitrile, and that helps hold our fuel, followed by a nylon fuel barrier. 
Our third layer is our key to the self-sealing, which is a layer that consists of a natural gum rubber sealant. Then we have our final layer known as a retainer. Uh, it's made of a nylon cord covered in a fuel-resistant rubber or nitrile, and that helps give the fuel cell its shape and rigidity. The way it works is once it's punctured or damaged, that third layer of rubber sealant comes in contact with fuel. Uh, it causes it to swell many times its size, effectively sealing the opening or the damage. The only airframe that I'm familiar with that still uses the self-sealing fuel cells is the A10. Uh, at least it's the only airframe that's maintained here that uses it, uh, which is not surprising given the nature of its mission. Even some of the engine feed lines are also covered in this material, which really goes to show how much thought was placed into the survivability of the airframe. Since the question was based off the Grumman TBF Avenger, I have no experience with the airframe, but I did do some research, and to my surprise, it turns out that the principle remains the same, although I'm sure some improvements have been made to the materials that are used. I hope this answers your listener question. I appreciate the opportunity on answering it. Thank you, and have a great day. All right, Kevin. Well, thanks for the question. And more importantly, Gilbert, thank you for coming to my rescue. Gilbert's a longtime listener. He's emailed me several times. He's actually worked on some of the fuel cells of the F-16As and Bs that I flew up in Fallon. And that was awesome. So thanks, Gilbert. Kevin, I hope that answered your question. Next, Lachlan from Australia says, I have questions about helicopters in the air-to-air -air mission, both friendly and enemy. Can you describe how a fast jet would attack an enemy helicopter? Is it easy? Generally speaking, what can helicopter pilots do defensively to avoid being shot down? Now, we learned one method last episode during the Strike Eagle interview. Besides air-to-ground weapons, you could also engage a helicopter with air-to-air -air missiles or the gun. In fact, there is a case of an A-10 doing that in Desert Storm, has an air-to-air -air kill on a helicopter. But evidently, as we learned, it's not that easy. It is possible. And what the helicopter can do to make it difficult is fly very low to the ground, where the signals from the ground can mask both radars and the heat. The helicopter could also train mask, fly behind, let's say, little ridges or different things. It could shoot back, or in real extremis, it could land and everybody could get out. And that's not going to do much for the helicopter if the attacking aircraft has the ability to attack it on the ground, but maybe the folks inside of it could survive. So good question, Lachlan. Thanks for that. And we will answer other questions on future episodes. Next, let's take a phone call. Hey, Joe, it's uh, Joe Kunzler, one of your flight leads on Patreon. Happy to chip in 15 bucks a month, keep the show going. Really appreciate all you do um, for aviation buffs like me. With field carrier landing practice becoming an all of Coopville, getting back in the news, I thought now would be a good time to um, lob you an intercarrier landing question. And on this one, I'm wondering if you could tell everyone uh, what was your most difficult carrier landing? And how did field carrier landing practice help you? I appreciate you taking my previous questions as always. It's one of the reasons why I'm so happy to, to be a flight lead on Patreon for you and the show. Also got a bonus question. I understand if you don't have time or can't answer it right away, but I'm hoping you have an F-111 podcast. I'm a big fan of that, of that jet from reading all the Dale Brown novels. Thanks for all you do, Jello. You keep podcasting, I'll keep listening and more. Thanks. All right. Well, thanks for the continued support of the show there, Joe. We do appreciate it. And he writes once in a while as well. I always enjoy the correspondences. 
My most difficult carrier landing, Joe, as many listeners are aware, was a night aboard the USS Nimitz off the Australian coast in 2005. The deck was pitching pretty significantly, and in fact, the whole odyssey was chronicled in the 2008 PBS documentary, Carrier. Took me three tries to get aboard, missed the entire ship the first time, missed all the wire a second time, and grabbed the four wire on the fly by the grace of God on the third try, and it was scary, no doubt about it. Now, FCLPs are vital to preparing to go for the boat uh, for deployment or any at-sea period for the reasons my former co-host Sunshine and I articulated last time you asked a similar question, and that is you've got to just go out and get batting practice before you step up and face a real pitcher. So you need to go out and do those landings. I understand that there is some consternation with the local residents up there in the Pacific Northwest, and I'm regretful for that, but I don't know what else they can do. But yes, practice is required for anything, including carrier landings. All right, next, Craig Norston asks, in the movie Top Gun, there is a scene of flying through jet wash and then going into a flat spin. Is that real? How much of a concern is jet wash? Well, yes, that is real. There is quite a bit of exhaust coming out of the engines, Craig. And if you fly right behind them, they could disrupt either your engines or the airflow over your wings. And either one of those could be a concern. And in the scenario that was depicted in the movie, what happened was the uh, Maverick character flew through and snuffed one of his engines and that created enough yaw to force a flat spin. And yes, that absolutely is a concern in the F-14 for reasons my captain and I talked about on that two-hour discussion where I mentioned is available on Patreon. I would say to your last point though, jet wash itself is not too big of a concern. It typically kind of smooths out a little bit, not far behind the aircraft, but wake turbulence is a much bigger issue. So you always wanna be careful flying behind other aircraft for both of those reasons. But wake turbulence is created as a result of the vortices coming off the wings from lift generation. And that has definitely created many problems in the past. In fact, I was on a mishap board for an F-16 that had a slight problem landing and damaged a horizontal stabilator because of wake turbulence of the aircraft the pilot was following. So yes, it is a concern. Finally, Dante asks, would you whistle the Top Gun intro music to yourself as you were taxiing to the cat? Would you switch to Danger Zone as you launched? No, Dante, I don't ever recall doing that, but it's a valid question. And oh, by the way, uh, whistling in the mask, I learned, is actually really difficult because of the way the face is constrained by the mask. Also, you have the positive O2 flow, so it makes whistling difficult anyway. But <laughs> yeah, nope, never did that. All right, that'll do it for questions. Thanks very much. We'll answer some more next time. And let's see, we're gonna to move to the feature interview now. For those of you enjoying the episode on YouTube, if we can make it work, the episode artwork should change at this point and you should see a video of me and my guest. All right, here we go. All right, today the Fighter Pilot Podcast is in Tucson, Arizona. We are at Davis Monthan Air Force Base and we are joined by the commander of the 309th Aerospace Maintenance and Regeneration Group, Colonel Jennifer Bernard. How are you doing today, Colonel? Wonderful. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, thanks for having us here. It was a little bit of trains, planes, and automobiles to get here, but we got here. And welcome. <laughs> and this is an amazing, inst I mean, I don't know what to call this place, but it's I've known about it my whole career, but never been here. 
Well, we're glad to have you. Really glad to have you. Excellent. Well, thanks. Let's talk about what all these airplanes are. Some just right outside the window behind me that are wrapped in different states of uh, repair, it looks like. But before we do here on the show, we always start with our guest. So could you tell us where you're from, what your alma mater was, for example, and what you've done in the Air Force so far? Well, cool. I'm originally from northern Michigan, a little town called Bel Air. Grew up there and went to an engineering college at Michigan Technological University in Houghton, Michigan. For the Air Force folks, that was north of where K.I. Sawyer Air Force Base used to be. Okay. So joined the Air Force uh, back in 1995, was in the engineering career field until some colonel said, hey, you ought to go be a maintenance officer. I said, okay. <laughs> so off I go to aircraft maintenance and uh, the two career fields are pretty synergistic effect. So I'm now at the 24 and a half year mark with multiple deployments and assignments wow. behind me. Okay. And as an engineer, you get to do some flying as well? No, I was no? not. I, in fact, I, I looked at it, but it uh, turns out you have to be, you know, meet a certain height requirement and I'm just too short. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Now, one thing I usually get to at the end, but I just flat out don't know, did you end up with a call sign like a air crew of some sort? So when I was a sortie generation flight commander, because my first name is Jen, just flipped the G to a J and called me sortie Jen. But nowadays, here I am at Aerospace Regeneration Group. Therefore, I must be Regen. <laughs> okay, perfect. All right. Well, that sounds good. So we're going to talk about the 309th, again, Aerospace Maintenance and Regeneration Group. Let's just call it AMARG. And for starters, did it used to once be called AMARC? It did. It's actually had several names over the years. So okay. we've been here almost 74 years wow. as April 1st. So it has had a variety of names and designations and organizational constructs in that uh, almost seven and a half decades. Okay. And so when it wasn't group, it was... A center. Center. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so AMARG is correct. All right. Right. Well, well yeah. it's helpful to understand where that designation came from. So I'm the equivalent of a group commander mm -hmm. and I'm a tenant unit on Davis-Monthan. So my boss is Ogden Air Logistics Complex, one of the three Air Force depots up in Utah. Okay. And then uh, that belongs to the Air Force Sustainment Center, which is over all three of the depots as well as the supply chains. Okay. So that's ultimately my organizational chain at this point. So I'm a group commander just like the guy that uh, maintains A-10s, HH-60s, and C-130s sure. over on base side. Okay. But your boss is a couple states away? Mm-hmm. All right. <laughs> and sometimes in the same time zone. Arizona doesn't do <laughs> oh, that like right. saving signs, yeah, so right. we switch that's back right. and forth. Perfect. Well, tell us what the mission is of AMARG. So actually, I really like that you're here to share the word that we're so much more than a boneyard, as people like to call us, um, because not only do we store aircraft, we reclaim parts from aircraft, we regenerate airplanes, make them flyable again. But what folks don't know is that we also uh, do depot level maintenance and modifications to the aircraft as well. So like right now, we are regenerating F-16s and mm -hmm. then separately those F-16s, we are also doing the drone peculiar equipment install on them. So it's a mod that makes them flyable manned or unmanned. Mm -hmm. So that's full of full-scale aerial target program. That breaks um, my heart, by the way. It, right? <laughs> <laughs> so you can YouTube some videos of that. Yes. We have some Kleenex <clears throat> handy for those that don't like to see airplanes in bits. And so we're doing that, but we're also doing a bunch of F-16 modifications on the active fleet right now, as mm. well as um, A-10 modifications. And uh, we'll take you out and you can see some of that today, as well as regenerating C-130s for foreign military sales. Okay. As well as we reclaim A-10 wings out in the desert. And then in a separate product line, then we do field level maintenance and repairs on those wings. And then they go on the aircraft coming out of depot with limited life on them. Okay. So you can take parts that are here 
refurbish them, send them back to the fleet, and that helps them to maintain their readiness and do the things they need. Right. To do. And it's okay. all through a very disciplined process mm-hmm. that, you know, the supply chain has to ask us to do that through, you know, formal requests. And okay. that has to be funded by the supply chain and all those fun kind of things. Paper trails so, and money trails. Yep, and Just want to make sure, because <laughs> if you haven't been here before, people think we just, it's like a pick apart, you go get them. But there's actually a really a high amount of accountability. Yeah. Yeah. I like to joke around and say we're a natural attraction for auditors, inspectors, uh, <laughs> Russians and tourists. So. <laughs> well, and I want to get to at least one of those. But before I do, you said something about the term boneyard and it doesn't sound like your favorite. Is it okay with you if we call this episode The Boneyard? Because it's got a catchy... I actually think that that's a good catch line. Okay. And then we can just follow it up with something like boneyard, but so right. much more or there boneyard, not what you think, you know, because it really catches somebody's eye. And then you realize, oh, my gosh, it's mm-hmm. so much more. The typical response from people is, I had no idea. Right. So that's why we're excited to get to share it with your audience, because there's so much here uh, that people have no idea that it's actually going on. And it totally makes sense because we're able to reutilize and repurpose things uh, that are stored here. But on the other hand, we actually refurbish quite a few aircraft that actually never touch the dirt out here. They fly Mm. in, they get modified, and they fly back to their home station. My last job in the Navy was at the Fleet Readiness Center in San Diego. And so we had a smaller scale of that based in uh, North Island. Mm -hmm. And so you're right. Yeah. Aircraft come in in various ways, and we'll get to that as well. I have a listener question about that. And they get repaired in many cases and sent back. I do confess, though, I, having never been here before now, thought maybe this was an aircraft equivalent of a junkyard. Right. They come here to die and they, at some point, turn into earth and <laughs> just go back into the elements. But that is not the case. Just on the short drive in, right. everything looks very tidy. And that's most people's observation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we usually don't even have to point that out. They're like, I can't believe how organized everything is and how carefully people take care of things. As you came in, you drove by display row. There's over 80 types of airplanes here. And most of those are represented on that display mm-hmm. row. Some people call it celebrity row. And then you made a right turn and came this direction. And on the right side of the road, there was the can yard where all the uninstalled engines are stored. Right. And then past that was a field of F-16s that are all awaiting to be regenerated for the QF-16 program right. that I described earlier. On your left side was a bunch of C-130s. So some of those are being regenerated for four military sales. Well, I saw all kinds of things. In fact, there was three aircraft in a row, not in the order I flew them, but the three I flew in training, a T-34, a T-2, and an A-4. And that was just fun to see. A bunch of S-3s. And you gave me a sheet of paper right before we started. Uh, Gosh, P-3s, T-34s, F-15s, T-38s, B-52s, H-60s. You've got, I think, a B-57, which is the oldest aircraft. We actually have about 10 of those for NASA. And then you have, I think, a brand new MH60, and I'm guessing it was in a fire or something. Is that mm-hmm. true? So we have a lot of everything. Is it only aircraft, or do you have vehicles? Do you have, I'm guessing there's no like ICBMs or crazy weapons. Well, actually, we do have a Titan missile that's a museum asset that you oh, wow. drive by. And so we do store things for all the different service components of the DOD, as well as Homeland Security, as in the Coast Guard, as well as a couple of foreign countries. We also have the museums are a big customer. Although the quantities are small, it's important to them to have a place to put things when they are deciding where they should be displayed or mm-hmm. if another museum is going to determine that they want to fund the refurbishment of an asset to be display ready. And so we do have that Titan missile. And then we also have about 300,000 pieces of tooling. 
and the tooling are the rigs, the fixtures, the dies, and the jigs that are mm. used to make aircraft parts. Wow. So when the, the aircraft is no longer being manufactured, this is a really great place to come out and store the items so that, for example, the A-10 is getting a, a new wing. That contract recently was awarded, and when that got awarded, they came to us and said, can you get us these couple thousand pieces of tooling and send it out to these locations? And uh, the application of a lot of lean and process improvement we got those things out within a day wow. of the request. I'm guessing the answer is usually yes when people come to you, it seems like. We try to make it yes, yeah. for sure. We And we have to operate like a business. Right. We really try to make sure that we explain our business to people because it's often misunderstood and that then they understand we ha- we're a working capital fund organization. So we have to make sure that we at least break even every year mm. in the way that we operate. And in the aggregate, you are saving the military and hence taxpayers dollars, correct? Yeah. We are. I mean, we it's... never quantify those because... Because when we're able to pull a part and put it into the supply system that helps an airplane that's grounded Mm -hmm. for that part, do you value that as how much it would have cost to get the part? Or do you value that the aircraft availability of putting the airplane back in the air? And of course, there are different ways to measure things and that that can be a challenge. Mm -hmm. Why here though? You know, so in, um, when was it? Last, late summer, I went and visited Whiteman Air Force Base to do an interview on the B-2, which was great. And that trip was a lot like this. And I had to make a special trip and they welcomed me and sat down and did this. Obviously a different location in central Missouri, very different climate. What's special about uh, here in Tucson? So the caliche soil and the arid climate are really the reasons we're able to store the aircraft out in the dirt. Any place else, you wouldn't be able to store the aircraft in dirt. You'd have to store mm. it on concrete. Also, that's the reason that we can uh, put the spray lac coating on there. You mentioned the coating. First, mm-hmm. it's uh, sprayed on like paint, and it's a rubberized protective coating. So we tape up per ceiling diagram each aircraft, and then we spray black on it, and then we spray white on it to reflect the heat so that it preserves all the components inside. Mm-hmm. So the climate here is what is conducive to allowing this to happen. And you would know that like commercial aircraft are stored up the road at Marana there mm. uh, as you pass that on the way down. Mm-hmm. They don't store them in the same configuration we do. Ours, we really are conscious about being able to reutilize everything. So the caliche soil is as hard as concrete. That's the subsoil. It's a couple feet underneath the top level of soil here. And it's also not corrosive. Hmm. So it really preserves the aircraft with minimal resources. And it probably doesn't rain here very much, I'm guessing? Not very much, like eight to 10 days a year, depending on the year between monsoon season. And it rained twice in the last month. And I said, what is this? And they said, oh, that's what they call winter here. Uh, Well, yes. And to be fair, we are recording in February on Valentine's Day. On Valentine's Day, yeah. I love the red shirt under the camis. (laughs) And so, yeah, I mean, it was a poor setup on my part. But, you know, if you were to try to do this in Whiteman, you would have to cut down a lot of vegetation. It rains a lot. The soil's not right. We passed a C5 Galaxy. The biggest airplane, I think, maybe anywhere, but especially in the Air Force, and it's parked right there on that dirt. It is. And actually, as you drive around, you will see that there's about 70-ish of them here, I think 67. All of the A models are stored here. Okay. And actually, that's a great story from just a couple of years ago. That whole fleet was grounded because it couldn't kneel anymore. As you know, the front of the aircraft opens up and it kneels down. The back of the aircraft opens up. You can Mm -hmm. get cargo in the back and out the front or vice versa. At whatever makes sense for the loading configuration and the cargo you're doing. Right. A couple of aircraft couldn't kneel, so the whole fleet got grounded. So they came to us, and it was a part that was not meant to be replaced. So they came to us, and we borrowed the right tool to remove the C5 nose landing gear ball screw drive. And we got about 100 of those off here in about two weeks. Hmm. We were able to pull about 100 of them from here because there's two per aircraft. Get them up to a the commodities group at our parent organization in Ogden, and they were able to do some... Uh, 
inspection and repair and get them out to the field. And so that fleet grounding was as short as it could be because we were able to help the supply system out by giving those parts. Because of the 309th AMARG. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, how big of an area here are you? Because you're the CEO here, right? You said treat it like a business. <laughs> right? So this, is, this right? is you. How big, how many aircraft, how many people? So we have 2,600 acres here, which is wow. about four square miles. Okay. We're about 27% of Davis-Monthan Air Force Base. Mm-hmm. The whole base is about wow. 10,000 acres. Okay. We have about 770 employees, a combination of government, civilians, and contractors. I am one of three military <laughs> uh, active duty. Okay. I got a couple of reservists that help us out as well. Mm-hmm. We have three squadrons and we have just over 3,200 aircraft stored here right now, just over 6,000 engines stored here. And as I mentioned, oh, just about 300,000 pieces of tooling. Right. Now, I know everyone else understands, but since I'm slow, bear with me, please, Colonel. Uh, when you say a squadron, that's because in the Air Force, that's different than the Navy. So when I think of a Navy squadron, I think of, no kidding, 200 people, 10 F-18s, and they go around and do operations. About a squadron the in the Air Force, but with airplanes? Being a group that is within a depot organization, mm-hmm. or I'll call it a sustainment organization. It's not necessarily with airplanes, but if you were to have something like a mission support group or a maintenance group, which you're thinking of as an operations group, but very similar okay. construct, All it's right. just not necessarily with airplanes assigned. Okay. Which is actually a good teeing off point to mention that AMARG doesn't actually own any of the assets that are stored here. We're like giant property managers. They're all owned by the program offices, so the SPOs in the Air Force and the PMAs and the Navy. Mm-hmm that store the aircraft here. Whatever that customer is that stores the asset here still owns that asset and tells us what to do with it. Are they also paying? Yes, they do. And through all the technical way that money moves around. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, what's the process for aircraft to come here? I mean, why would an aircraft come here? So the different services, those decisions are made at the service level. Mm-hmm. So for example, the two major customers being the Air Force and the Navy, mm-hmm. will make the determination based on budget direction and uh, fleet sizes and and strengths and capabilities, determine what they need or don't need, or even what they can afford or can't afford. However, those decisions are made at the service level. Mm -hmm. Then that drives down to the program offices to determine and the MAGCOMs determine how that distribution of assets should be. And so if it is determined that the aircraft should be retired, uh, we are a very likely location that those would come. Well, speaking of that, is there anything else like this in the United States, again, for military? Not that I'm aware of. Okay. I mean, I read that the F-117 has got some special, they just stored them where they kept them in the first place, Mm -hmm. but that's a different animal. So let's say an aircraft, let's say one of my old F-18s. In fact, there's one out there I'm hoping to go see after we wrap up. Let's say it gets told it's coming here. Now, if it can fly, it can fly itself in. If it cannot, it can get brought here, I'm guessing what? Via truck. Okay. Yeah. So most of them actually do fly in and we have a a statement to work and agreements that all have to be in place prior to the unit actually departing. (laughs) Although we have had that happen. You're not supposed to just show up. Okay. (laughs) So the assets will fly into Davis-Monthan and then uh, if the air crew is still with it, then they will uh, taxi it over and we catch them at our induction area and take care of them there. If not, we will tow it over from Bayside. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the induction process would be we take an inventory of whatever's there. We always, in advance, advise and make sure to repeat to folks. You can't take things off the airplane <laughs> before they show up. And part of that is because we need the accountability. Right. And part of it is because we have to run the aircraft to induct it into storage. So in order to do that, you have to have it in working condition. Hmm. So we will flush all the fluids out of it. Then we'll put a lightweight oil through the uh, systems to make sure to preserve it. That's like sewing machine oil, Mm -hmm. 10-ton oil. And then we wash it. If the program office has directed us or the supply chain has directed us to remove a bunch of parts 
We will do that after we've preserved the asset, and then we will tow it out in the desert and put the swale out on it wow. and tie it down. So you may have noticed, too, some aircraft need a significant amount of tying down. Sure. I guess the most extreme example of that is a C-5. As you mentioned earlier, it has 72 tie-downs on it. <laughs> So although Arizona uh, weather is phenomenal, occasionally Mm. there's a microburst out here and airplanes like to fly. We like to keep them (laughs) on the ground in AMARC. Well, for the same reason, I didn't see a single helicopter with blades on it. True. And actually, we have all the blade boxes are over in a particular area and they are stored as a set. Okay. So normally out in the services, you'll have one blade per box. We have one set of blades per box. Now, Colonel, I've got a list of listener questions I plan to ask you at the end, but this one applies right here. It's from Scott Morris, who's also one of our team members on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. He says, when dropping off aircraft to the facility, are there any traditions commemorating a last flight from a squadron or platform, either official or not? Uh, Example, during the F-14 drawdown, I heard, this is Scott, saying uh, air crew would get out and have a shot of wild turkey. I don't know how they did that, if they brought it with them or whatever, but, or after desert storm they were painting combat zone markings on a10s uh, have you seen anything in your time here funny from people we have an, actually the navy i like to look at the aircraft that they bring in sometimes because they'll have the crew sign the aircraft okay so uh, some of those are pretty sentimental and some of them are pretty humorous okay <laughs> so <laughs> well maybe we should leave it at that right uh, i never flew an airplane here like i said my first time but i did fly what i knew was the last flight on an airplane f-18 going from fallon to lamore and of course i had no gripes it was a perfect flight nothing wrong with it and it was just sad but mm-hmm. i just you know i gave it a little pat i was getting close to the end of my career as well but i can see that so in other words in that case let's say i had flown that f-18 here maybe it was coming because the airframe was too old or too many flight hours but the engines, let's say, if they're perfectly good, you're just going to leave those in? I mean, we're not going to take out some of those high-value things and send them back? So it actually all depends on what the customer is asking us to do and huh. what the supply-demand rates are and all that. So quite frequently, we do pull engines and okay. send them back to wherever the customer is asking us to send them. Okay. So the Navy actually is having us send out several engines right now, as huh. well as the Air Force. Okay. I mean, even if an engine is determined to be disposed of, then separately we send that to someplace else so they can reclaim the precious metals out of it okay. and materials. So I want to jump right to the scenario where that airplane that I brought you, then later we decide we want it back, but I don't want to skip the parts in the middle. So aircraft sit here sometimes for a long time. Mm-hmm. Are they just wrapped up and that's it? Or I'm guessing you have a master board somewhere and everything gets looked at once in a while? Yeah, we have actually uh, commercial off-the-shelf business systems that help us manage all the inspection cycles and make sure we take care of the aircraft that are stored out here. And those actually complement our depot level work as well. Our business systems are able to help us keep track of the production and our progress on the repair lines that we do. Okay. The aircraft that are stored out here generally get inspected at least every six months, if not more frequently. And um, we have several different storage categories. Storage category 1,000 and 1,500 is where you don't want to take parts off them. Not just you don't want to, but it actually requires a service level permission, right. like the Air Force level or the Navy level would have to say you can take parts off that aircraft. Or sometimes Congress will put it right in the NDAA that says you can't take parts off that. Mm-hmm. And then storage category 2000 is where the customers could tell us to go take parts off of them and reclaim those parts and put them in their respective supply system. Hmm. And those would be re-preserved every four years. Okay. All those categories I just listed. Storage category 4000, you can reclaim parts off of them and the aircraft isn't going to be re-preserved. So every four years we take off the coating and we run the engines and then we do the preservation process again. Okay. And so they're really actually well taken care of out here, as well as when people are driving around, if they just see something on their way to or from a different aircraft, then they report it and we make sure to put in a work order and and get that addressed. You have a system for that. Mm -hmm. We do. So for the 4,000s, is it assumed then that those aircraft will most likely never 
come back, be regenerated? Yeah. So the most likely ones to come back are 1,000 or 1,500. So for example, we have had two B-52s fly out of here, get regenerated and fly out of here in the last couple of years. We had uh, 13 C-27s come in a few years ago. All 13 of those flew back out. They went to the Coast Guard. So they came in as Army okay. assets, and they went out as Coast Guard assets. Is that that airplane that looks like a C-130, but with only one wing on each side? Or wing, one uh, propeller uh, on each side. On a, uh, they still have one wing on each side. It's okay. <laughs> so, we'll send it out. Like no, a anyway. mini C-130, yes. Yeah, okay. Uh, Spartans. Gotcha. For whatever reason, I always um, forget the uh, name of that. Right, okay. So C-145 Sky Trucks have also gone out of here, as well okay. as the C-23 Sherpas. A lot of helicopters actually leave here uh, via ground shipment, and then they get refurbished somewhere else and are able to be made flyable again. Uh, I think uh, 60 OH-58s left here, so we used to have them, and all of them are gone now. Hmm. And then like uh, five H-53s went out for uh, foreign military sales earlier this year. So actually nearly 200 airplanes leave here a year in one way or another. Well, and so like a lake in the desert where less water is coming in than is evaporating, is are you drawing down? I mean, we like to be looked at as a reservoir for that reason. So right. good analogy. We need to be able to support whatever the service needs. For example, we've made space here for KC-135 or KC-10 retirements as the KC-46 gets fielded. Ah. That space is here for when that is needed. So we always need to be planning ahead and paying attention to the size and the dynamics of the fleets across the services. Sure. So we're customer service based. We're not looking to draw down or grow necessarily in the storage aspect, but we really capitalize on the utilization of the same skill set and manpower that's used to store the aircraft. It's also used for the modification and depot level work that we're able to do. There's a lot of synergy there, especially Mm. with C-130s, A-10s, and F-16s. We have that kind of skill set across our manpower. Our workforce is super flexible and can go get that other work done, the modification work. So we're actually strengthening our modification work, knowing that the fleet sizes right now, they really need a lot of sustainment work. They don't need as much storage work. Hmm. We're trying to gauge that all the time, but it's kind of like predicting the weather. You get your best uh, right. data and, and estimations, and then you go from there. And it's a guesstimate still, right? right? You did sneak one past me. NDAA? What is, I oh, should, NASA, yeah. National, National Defense, Defense Authorization okay, Act. Okay, perfect. Congress says you will do this, and it has to go into your budgets and has to go the direction that comes gotcha. straight from Congress on certain things. Okay. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com careers. Visit today. All right. So in my theoretical situation earlier where I flew an F-18 here and then you inducted it. We talked about that. You kept it up for a number of years. Let's say suddenly the Navy or anyone for that matter suddenly decides they want that. What is that process like, the regeneration? A couple things could happen. So the F-18 specifically, we actually did. uh, I think the Marines brought some out of here. Yeah, they did bring some out of here and they got sent to uh, the Jacksonville Mm -hmm. area. Okay. So we shipped them 
via surface okay. to Jacksonville, and then they get uh, refurbished from there. So that is one way that it can go out to the services. There are a lot of uh, laws and accountability and making sure we pay attention to what does go out of here. So Ooh. there's multiple means. Okay. So that is one of them is it could go out overground. We could make it flyable ourselves like we're doing with a lot of C-130s right now, like we're doing with F-16s right now, like we've done with several different airframes in the past. We could partner if we don't necessarily have that system-specific expertise. We could partner with those that do, that are of the military. Mm -hmm. Another way aircraft can go out of here is determined to be disposed of. And if it's determined to be disposed of or leave the storage, leave this reservoir here, (laughs) it gets turned over to DLA, which is Defense Logistics Agency, Disposition Services. The former name for that would have been Dermo. Right. right? Yep. Defend, Dermo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Their name now is D-Lads. Okay. And so they have a detachment right here next to us, you know, pretty smart location for that. Right. So we turn the aircraft over to them. And in some cases, if the aircraft is a commercial variant, has a commercial equivalent, mm-hmm. then they will go through GSA, uh, the General Services Administration, and it is possible for an aircraft to be auctioned off that way. Oh. That's really only for like your kind of transport aircraft. Yeah, your, so your, I saw a your, C9 out there. It looks a lot like a DC9. Right. right. So okay. if there's something that has that commercial variant and it's not military specific, that can go out that way. Okay. A fighter aircraft or a heavy cargo aircraft or a, a lot of our trainer aircraft cannot go out that way. But a lot of people really try and ask those questions. And since they know that answer, sometimes they try and go through other means to get different answers. And we just <laughs> consistently give them the legal answer. Well, and you can almost understand their point. There are legally privately owned A4s and other fighters, but they're not coming from here. And they generally got those from some foreign country. Right. They didn't get them via U.S. So if, let's say you regenerated here for whatever reason, an F-18, do you have pilots that can do those first flights? So my record was when I was at the FRC in San Diego, I flew an aircraft for the first time that had not flown in over eight years. But we were a specially trained group. A couple of these guys have been on this podcast, actually. And we knew that, hey, when you get in this airplane, it's not like just your run-of-the-mill flight. The airplane flew the day before when you're in the squadron. It hasn't flown in a long time, so you really need to check things out. But do you keep, what, test pilots here? Or do you call up the unit and say, hey, your airplane you want, you better send someone out to fly it. So like most of my answers, it depends. Right. Specifically with the F-16s, yes, we do have a pilot here that is assigned here. He is among the group of pilots that does all the check flights for the, all the aircraft coming from all the depots. Okay. His group is headquartered out of Warner Robins, and he is assigned with us, as well as a couple other folks out of that reserve unit here. And uh, in fact, he just took an aircraft over to Jacksonville, Florida. He should be landing there about now today oh, wow. to deliver it to Boeing so that then they can install the drone peculiar equipment to it. Okay. We're a second product line that does the same thing here. Gotcha. So we do have that for F-16s, uh, for the A-10s, and for like T-1s. We work with the units to send in pilots when we need them. If we know there's going to be a consistent enough workload where we need to do that, then we will work to get that person assigned or a person with appropriate skill set assigned here to be able to do that. Like the F-16 mm-hmm. is probably going to increase to two pilots here in the next couple of years. Okay. All right. So back at the beginning, you said something about, I forgot if you used the word Russian or Soviet, but either way, <laughs> I want to come back to that because this area here has some very large strategic effect as well, does it not? I mean, I've seen myself pictures of B-52s that I think where they had to separate the wings and then show them that they were separated from someone who's looking from above. And I want to ask about the F-14 also, because I've heard plenty of rumors about when the F-14 was retired, they were 
cut up right away because they didn't want parts falling in. I don't know. So how does AMARG fit into some of the broader strategic international issues that the United States deals with? So both of the examples you gave were true. Okay. Um, and that's why we really like the reservoir analogy, because you think about what is here and what's very strategic about it. So those B-52s, sure enough, they're stored here and they are in that segmented configuration mm -hmm. so that they can be viewed. And uh, underneath the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaties and the New START Treaty, they can inspect us and they do inspect us uh, to make sure that we're complying with that. Along the lines of the F-14, sure enough, there's uh, very few of those left here because most of them were disposed of to prevent right. parts from falling into the wrong hands. Wow. That is interesting. It's good to hear it from the authority because <laughs> everything else has just been scuttlebutt, as we so, would call it in the Navy. Yeah, I always find it interesting, too, because there are a lot of strategic decisions about what gets stored here and mm -hmm. then the means by which things leave here. But we're on the tactical execution end of those very strategic decisions. Right. It's pretty neat to see how many different kinds of airframes and how many different solution sure. sets there are for things here. But in the end, as you said earlier, you're executing someone else's plan, right? right. I mean, you're going to provide inputs, but... People tell you what to do and you do it. Right. That's yep. the military way. And, anyway. and we make sure there's the right workload agreements sure. and statements of work and memorandums of understanding and, you know, things like that to lay out those responsibilities and, mm -hmm. you know, money's exchanging hands. So you got to make sure that's well understood. Right. It's very interesting, too, because some customers want to make sure they think they can do things a lot cheaper. And so there's some negotiation that has to take place on a lot of those situations. Okay. So I'm sure that takes up a lot of your day-to-day -day stuff is audits and various things. As I'm you said very earlier. grateful for our lawyer. <laughs> okay. All right. Is there, if I were to ask you, how long does a typical aircraft stay? Is there one answer to that? I mean, nope. some come quickly and go back and others well, like, stay for like a Like our whole time. modification line, like mm -hmm. there's several aircraft that are only here for a few weeks at a time. Okay. So they come in, they get modified, they leave. But then things like there's a TA4J that's been here 50 years. Wow. So anything from a few weeks to a few decades, <laughs> um, which is the, the our business systems have to accommodate for right. that. And they have to keep the records for the entire time the aircraft is here and mm -hmm. beyond. Mm -hmm. We'll have F-16s that we're regenerating that have been here 25 years and they'll yeah. go out and fly again and do their job. What would you say is the biggest misconception about AMARG from people who just don't have a chance to listen to a show like this or come and know you? I mean, we kind of talked about the junkyard already. People maybe think it's just a place to throw your old used toys. But is there one thing you try to really kind of beat back as uh, something people get wrong? There's such a professional and well-spirited team here that does so much to take care of so many assets. The piece that people don't have any idea of is the work we actually do and the work we accomplish. Right. And it is a constant information sharing kind of challenge to make sure that folks understand, hey, we actually fix a lot of airplanes. We mm -hmm. don't, this isn't just a storage place. And we have a lot of folks that take great pride of the almost, uh, like I said, about 770 people. So many of them are prior military. Uh, some of them came straight from civil aviation. Some of them didn't even have aircraft background. They came out here and started working and they just love working here and they love contributing to so many different warfighters across the world. And then we're able to, the depot level maintenance and the, I'll call it desert speed line or modifications that mm -hmm. we do to the aircraft. People have no idea those things are done. And like the wings, yeah. the ability for our guys to fix these wings is amazing. I just had some engineers from a program office down here and they saw our T1As. We are the only FAA authorized military repair station. And so some of these aircraft got damaged in a hailstorm a couple of years ago and we're mm -hmm. repairing them. Wow. And so we're reskinning all the pressurized portions of the aircraft. And it's the most extensive maintenance these aircraft have undergone and they're 30 years old. <laughs> and so the engineers looked at these aircraft and they saw how many rivets and how many fasteners had to be replaced to do that. And they said, and how many mistrials have you had? And several hands in the crowd of people went like this. Zero. 
the expression of the engineer is going like, really? Yeah. And we're like, yes. So <laughs> our guys make sure that they are truly artisans and professionals in what they do yes. and the kind of maintenance that they have. So, you know, we take a sense of pride and kind of some of our guys are boneyard wranglers and, you know, it's kind of gritty and, and spirited and neat. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, they are professionals and they take great pride in everything that they do. And they're very disciplined in the process. We are always finding better ways to do things. Yeah. We use a constraints ma management processes called Art of the Possible. And so we really are always trying to find better and smarter ways to do things. Just last week, my guys were like, hey, we figured out how to cut this down from 100 maintenance man hours down to 20 hours. That was removing some fuel foam from C-130s before they get disposed of. <laughs> the T-1s, for example, they figured out how to um, save over 100 hours an airplane by making a wooden jig that our engineers approved to pick up all the holes without having to find those holes in some other way, which is one of the ways we prevented all, any mistrills at right. all. And the same thing with our A-10 model line, and we're doing an A-10 depot called an SSI, or structural inspection. Mm -hmm. Same thing. They're able to find better and better ways to do things. It's really enjoyable to show somebody that hasn't been here around, and they go, I yeah. had no idea you did all this other stuff. Right. And that diverse portfolio of work that our folks do mm -hmm. really kind of makes business sense, because in my own mind, I think about, well, there's people that will buy one kind of stock, and there's people that will buy a mutual fund, <laughs> which is the safer option to go, which has a better balance, mm -hmm. right? So the diversity of our portfolio of work mm -hmm really makes it so that our workforce can go from workload to workload. And then we're continuously looking for those small workloads that we can bring in mm -hmm. to provide the sustainment where it may not be able to get done in a timely fashion somewhere else. Yeah. Well, and it's, I think, so right for you to talk about that because people get caught up on 2,600 acres, so many thousands of aircraft. It's the right soil. It's the right climate. It's these engines. It's these aircraft. It's the people. It's the people. The people make and, it. All the time we have visitors coming in here, even from our parent unit up in Ogden. And we had some folks here this week and they went through and they you can see the pride in the people. You can see how much they enjoy it. Mm -hmm. When I have my commander's calls or when I'm out and about wandering around, the people are very engaging and they'll say hello. They'll tell us what they're working on. They'll tell us problems are solving or problems are facing they need help with. Mm -hmm. And they work together on things. It's a constant feedback from the visitors going, your folks are really working hard and they really love what they're doing. Yeah. And it's really neat. Now, we are maintainers. Therefore, you know, we kind of, you know, have that friction that makes us solve problems. So, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes we get a little frustrated. We say we operate like a family, which means we're really tight like a family. But sometimes yeah. we fuss with each other well, to work through issues and get it exactly <laughs> get it fixed and get moving on with things. Yeah. And we love the environment we work in. You know, I'm taking some people around two days ago and I don't think I've ever seen that many jackrabbits in one place. And we've got three different types of owls out here. And then I wanted to ask you about critters. Right. <laughs> so that I thought, you know, so we have the warm and fuzzy critters, okay. that, you know, between the, the owls and and rabbits and coyotes and other things like that. We had a deer walk in a couple of years ago. So we had to get some help getting him <laughs> out of here. Out. Yeah, yep, he had, yep. It was a three by three mule deer. He had oh. six points on him. We're like, I'm sure you we, have people willing we, to help. Yeah, we had two camps of people. Oh, the poor deer needs food. Oh, the poor deer should be food. <laughs> so <laughs> on the other hand, we've got the scorpions and rattlesnakes, uh, but the uh, Africanized aggressive bees are actually the most dangerous thing we have really? out here. Oh, wow. As well as uh, the gophers cause us some challenges because they dig a lot of holes. And yes. when you're walking around between the aircraft tie downs and the holes, on the ground, you got to really watch where you're Twisted going. Ankles. So, for example, mm. when our guys are getting ready to do something around an aircraft, they said, you know, hey, why don't we buy a bunch of little cones and we will mark off with a cone. We will put a cone wherever there's a little hazard on the ground mm. so that we can prevent trips and falls. Right. Just something simple like that to have a safe work environment and yeah. what we do, even from uh, making sure our work shifts are adjusted for the weather. 
You know, in the winter, we come in a little bit later, most of our work being outdoors. In the mm-hmm. summertime, we come in a lot earlier and they work. Try to be done before the heat of the day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing, is there no need to do anything at night here? Most things can usually wait. Um, we, we have portable lights, I'm guessing. Yeah, we do have portable lights. We have uh, five different hangers as well as a shelter that's uh, okay. a thousand feet long by 300 feet wide. And uh-huh. so it's like a hangar without walls. So we have over half a million square foot of industrial workspace. And so a lot of that actually does have a swing shift and it's a growing swing shift with all yeah. the modification work that we're doing. Okay. We do have a swing shift that is getting larger and larger as mm. uh, we're doing this mod work. Getting back to the critters real quick, any unpleasant surprises when you open up uh, aircraft or they have them pretty well sealed? Both. So we have okay. it pretty well sealed, All right. but we do really make sure our folks never reach into a place without being able to look first mm. and without gloves. Um, as well as our, our footwear is uh, pretty beefy, uh, just because of being in a maintenance environment, but also because we're out there in the desert. We do have a great relationship with entomology. If uh, some of those bees or maybe some of the rattlesnakes or scorpions uh, aren't cooperative. So at least the snakes and the scorpions are a little more predictable than the bees. So, (laughs) so, yeah. African, you said, or what? The bees uh, in this area are Africanized or very aggressive. Hmm. And so they will swarm and actually chase a person. We really do have that hazard. I learned that at my house as well. We thought we'd relocate them and they're like, "Uh, no, they're aggressive. And we're like, well, we have a two-year-old kid and a 13-year-old dog. And now the kid's four and the dog's 15. So sounds like it worked out. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Well, this has been really fascinating. (laughs) I have a handful of listener questions. Mm -hmm. Some of them we probably already covered. Right. So we can kind of treat it like a lightning round, but I just put it to them that I was coming out. And so they, of course, inquiring minds want to know, as you recall. Uh, Let's see. Doug Stazak says, at what point do they send aircraft to scrap? Now, we talked about that they're right there. Is that, again, it's not your decision generally, but have you seen just from being here what draws that decision out? So once that decision is decided, there's a particular form, I think it's a 913, that gets actually presented and that comes to us and we prepare the aircraft for disposal. So we remove all the hazards. We remove anything explosive, anything composite, anything, uh, like I said, explosive. And we will segment the aircraft, prepare it for disposal, and then we turn it over to DLA Disposition Services. And then they have a contractor that actually disposes of the aircraft. So they will come on site here and they will take the aircraft apart in pieces that fit on a truck. And then they will go shred that aircraft. And then the shredded materials, generally the metals, will then go into... Yeah, they get recycled. The proceeds from that recycled money goes either to pay offset the cost of that contract that DLA Disposition Services has, mm-hmm. or it goes uh, back into the U.S. Treasury if it exceeds the cost yeah. of that contract. Can I talk to you or ask you, I should say, about explosives? Because that's an interesting statement. I mean, so an aircraft comes in, obviously, with no ordinance. So the ejection seats on fighters. Exactly. The ejection the seat, the canopy, wow. things like the fire bottles, the batteries. That's not explosive, but you know, it's an example of a hazard that we right. take off of there. Okay. And then it's very interesting to know we have one of the largest radioactive storage sites as well, because if you think about anything that glows in the dark is actually emitting right. some bit of radiation. Yeah. And so we are very careful about the way that we extract that, we, the way we account for it, and the way that it gets properly disposed of. Okay. There's a lot of those kind of things that you kind of take for granted, but then when you start walking through that disposal process and you get to see the care that our folks take in the assets, but also the care they take in themselves and making sure that they're protected from anything that might be hazardous. That makes sense. Okay. Victor DeSanto says, what was the longest period of time an aircraft was here that was then returned to service? 39 years. Wow. Was that the, did you say, I saw a video of you on a local channel. Was that the Wise Guy B-52? Or was that, that was only here 10 years. Okay. 
And back to your question about different things that crews do. Mm -hmm. They had written a note in the wise guy and they said, for when we need you again, take good care of her. And that was a super sentimental. <laughs> so we did, yeah. yeah, we did. It was so That's neat cool. to see that go out of here and, and find that behind a panel. Okay. Um, but Wise Guy was here for about uh, 10 years. Decade. But uh, B-57 actually was regenerated after being here for 39 years. 39 years. Wow. Right. Okay. Dan Ross asks, what level of readiness to return to service do they keep different airframes? So we talked about the 1,000, 2,000. So I, th I think we got that one. Right. All right. Jivo says, some of the aircraft admitted to the boneyard are not airworthy. What are some of the ways these aircraft arrive at the boneyard? We talked about truck. Does anything come by train? Are there rails here? There are rails nearby, but I don't think we've had anything okay. arrived by rail. How about um, by C5? So. Yeah, so sometimes the C5 will not only bring things in, but it also takes things out. Huh. We reclaimed a B1 nacelle for the two engines. Uh, they had one that uh, IFE'd into Midland, Odessa there about two years ago. In-flight emergency. Okay. So it IFE'd into in, in, middle of Odessa because um, it had an engine fire. Oh, oh. And we had that guest on the show. Okay. So yeah. you're familiar with the situation. Yes. That aircraft ended up getting three engines running, and they flew it over to Oklahoma City for the remainder of its repairs, and they needed an entire nacelle, engine nacelle. And so we worked with the um, B-1 maintainers out of the depot there at Tinker, oh. and they came out here and reclaimed that nacelle. A C-5 came in and picked up that nacelle about a year and a half ago. Okay. I said, I think, uh, how long right. it was. So I just, as you were talking, I had to remind myself, uh, Wacky was the name of our guest, and he told the story, but I don't think he was part of the crew. So to your point, Davis Monthan, which is an operating Air Force base in addition to the AMARG mm -hmm. side of it, has, I'm guessing, uh, some long runways. I don't think we're that high here, right? Only a couple. Of... We're just around 3,000 feet okay. elevation. But, but, but the, big the airplanes runway, coming in and out. So. Yeah, the runway is sufficient for any size of airplane oh. that catches. Right. So, and we're one of 33 partner units on this base. So I am a tenant unit here, and it is hosted by right. the 355th wing. Okay. Ollie Smith asks, and again, I think we touched on this, what are some of the oldest aircraft in the Boneyard? You said that was the B-57? The B-57 is the oldest aircraft that is here, and there's about 10 of them. Okay. And then the TA-4J has been stored here for 50 years. Okay. For example, but we got a lot of B-52s and KC-135s that are uh, pretty long in the tooth. <laughs> wow. All right. Dennis Petretti has a rather long question, and I think the sum of it is he's not able to get good information off the internet on tours available here. So he's wondering uh, what time of year they are offered, what does it cover, uh, where does he go to find it? So I think there's Just, a museum attached. There is, and that's a great question. So the 355th Wing has an agreement with the Pima Air and Space Museum, which is just to the south of us, okay. that whenever we are open, which is generally Monday through Friday, but with the exception of holidays, sure. there's two tour buses a day that can come through here. You have to have at least 10 business days advance reservation hmm. with Pima Air and Space Museum. And so it is a tour that you need to pay for. I don't recall how much it costs. Nominal, I'm hoping. Um, yeah. And so that two weeks advance notice allows the security folks to clear every um, passenger on the bus. And then there's two, those two buses a day that can come through here. Okay. And so that is a really common question. So I'm really glad he asked. Oh, good. Well, so if you internet, internet search Pima Air Museum. Pima Air and Space Museum Air and Space or Museum. P -A -S -M, okay. PASM. You should be able to find it. I think it's PASM.org. Okay. There's a super museum over there, too. I cool. mean, it's right up there with Duxford and uh, pretty uh, different assets than are stored at the Air Force Museum. Right. Okay. I think we covered Andrew Hinchberger's question. Are there any airframes power plants that are approved for civilian purchase? And I think you said that happens after they leave your hands. Yeah, they would go through DLA and then through okay. GSA. All right. Josh Latzman says, what is the reason for the Boneyard's 
quote, low inventory. The status has changed May 2019. We talked about the reservoir, mm -hmm. essentially. So would you say, is it kind of sinusoidal? I, mean, I don't know if I pronounced that correctly, but sometimes things come more than they sure. leave and sometimes they leave more than they come. Well, yeah. And, and I mean, you think about with the primary two customers being the Air Force and the Navy, you think about any time that they field something new, like on the fighter side, the F-35, then there should be some retirements that correlate to that. Mm. When the tanker gets fielded, then there should be some retirements of the older tankers that correlate to that. Well, we've already got RPAs in here, like MQ-1s that have come in as well. Mm. Like you said, there's not really a great sine wave along with it, but there's, a, if you will, it's more event-driven. Uh, like if there's a significant drawdown after, you know, let's say the, the Vietnam War, there was a big influx here. After the Gulf War, there was a big influx here. But then there was a bit what was perceived as a big influx in like 2010 or 11. And it was actually fairly small when you compare it to previous conflicts ending. Gotcha. It's really more event based, I would call it, uh, okay. based on if there's a significant drawdown of forces or if there is uh, the fielding of a new asset that's replacing older assets. That makes sense. Okay. So like the P3, there's a lot of those here and the P8 is replacing it. Mm -hmm. All right. The last question is from... Joe Kunzler, I want to take a stab at this, see if I've learned something from you, Colonel. Uh, how hard is it to request an airframe for a museum? My guess is it's not your choice because you are a steward of these and someone would need to ask whoever owns these aircraft. And then if they get the go ahead, you do what you need to do to send it off to go to a museum. Right. And so depending on the type of asset, they could commonly ask, like there's a POC at the Air Force Museum mm -hmm. uh, that's, you know, based out of Wright-Patterson. Right. And they could say, hey, we would like an aircraft to go on loan because anything that's displayed somewhere else is that's a military asset still is retained ownership through that service component. So the Air Force Museum would still own something and then a different museum could put it uh, have it on loan there for quite some time with the permission of the Air Force Museum mm -hmm. or the Naval uh, Museum. Gotcha. That requesting museum, just for clarification, has to, you know, find the funding to pay sure. for all that. It's, right. it's uh, you know, so. Everything uh, is tracked through dollars. It absolutely That's is. Right. Okay. And training assets go out of here as well. That's one I forgot to mention earlier. Oh. There's a ton of assets that go out here to be used as training assets. So like, like piece, static ground. Well, they could be static ground. They could be like medical trainers, you oh. know, so for medical professionals that want to train how to get uh, litters on and off different uh. assets or be able to reconfigure the aircraft for evacuating somebody, you know, to put litters on there, mm -hmm. to put uh, metal, medical evacuation, things like that. So medical trainers, maintenance trainers, those are really good reuses of things that are coming out of here. Well, this has been a lot of fun, Colonel. I've learned so much. Before we transition to our last final questions that we have for all of our guests, no matter the topic, yeah, I'm guessing you're not just pulling from the local Tucson population. Folks come from all over with certain skills. No, so I recently had a, a high-ranking visitor look at me and go, how are you drawing people in? I, you know, some <laughs> other locations are having a hard time getting people. I'm like, well, Arizona is one of the top five aviation states in the country. Mm. And so there is a good pool of folks that are familiar with aircraft and able to have that kind of skill set here. You USA Jobs is one way that people can apply to come work here, as well as AFSCCivilianCareers.com. Okay. That's Air Force Sustainment Center, so AFSCCivilianCareers.com. That's a great draw of people that want to come here. Also, we have... It really varies on the number of parts that we pull based on what the request is. Gotcha. So we had over 6,000 parts that we pulled last year, and their value was about $460 million. Wow. You're not going to pull a nut and a bolt off. Yeah, we might. Really? Okay. If it's so, like a very rare... Right. If it's something that they like can't get in some way. Yeah. If there's something that they can't get in another way, uh, you know... Was, that's the key. Then... The primary source of parts is through the supply system. Okay. Then they ask, is that available at AMARG? 
And if it is available at AMARG, then they ask the requester, hey, could you use a part from AMARG? Because mm-hmm. the parts that are here are used. But we also actually have a warehouse. So about 70,000 new parts go out of here a year, too. We, were, we are an Air Force supply point also. Okay. So we may just pull a bolt if that's necessary. We may pull a piece of trim. If it can't be obtained somewhere else, then it may be worth it. It may cost more than the value of the part for the manpower. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there's a whole lot of parts that the value, the manpower cost of pulling it is way less than the cost of the part. Gotcha. As we go through our reclamation section, our guys dispatch every day from our reclamation building and they go out across Colb Road, which is a public road that goes right through the middle of AMARG, or I should say kind of beneath us. It's fenced off and it, the road is sunken mm-hmm. down right here to the east of us where we're sitting. And then they go out there and re- reclaim the parts based on um, making sure that it's supportable. And then they'll come back in. So they get inspected, they get washed, they get non-destructive inspected, and they get packed and shipped on the same building. Hmm. So every couple of days when I'm walking through that building, I'm fascinated with the <laughs> wide variety of parts and the value of the parts that may be going through there. We also have a wood mill that's one of the largest consumers of lumber in the state of Arizona because they are packing out large parts as right. well. I mean, we sent a B-52 stab out of here. Packed in a wood crate, essentially, or exactly, okay, and, and uh, so or A ten wings that mm-hmm. go out of here, or F eighteen wings. Hmm. So pretty large parts go out of here as well. Well, that is amazing. <laughs> I had no idea, and you've even given me some paperwork to take away with me, which uh, of course, unfortunately, the listener can't get. But we'll do our best to link to you guys wherever we can find you online. This has been a lot of fun, Colonel. Thanks very much. Before we let you go, two final questions. What's the future hold for you? You said 24, would you say, years? 24 and a half years. 24 and a half. That's about when I quit. Uh, <laughs> but I didn't make 06, so <laughs> congratulations. What's the future hold? You're going to keep playing the game? I am here through the summer of 21. Okay. Uh, so another year and a half. So, which is great because the organization can have some stability by having a commander for four years in a row. And not just someone coming and going all the time. Right. And so, um, I don't know what's next. Uh, My husband and I have a four-year-old daughter. And so, that's kind of the focus of uh, making sure that her upbringing is a priority next. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it is probably likely, I think, I try to make a difference every day that I come to work. So, if those in my chain of command think that there's a place that I can make a difference next, I'll... I'll enjoy making that difference at that next location too. And I'll miss this place just like I miss all of the assignments. Um, There's only one assignment I wouldn't go back to. So I'll say I miss most of the assignments (laughs) um, that I've had. Understandable. All right. Well, that's great. And thank you for your service on behalf of the listener. And the last one I got out of order because we already asked you. So Colonel Jennifer Barnard, Jen, Regen, uh, just that's what you've done your whole career, huh? Yep, that's it. Jen with a G. Right, exactly. And so I've been all the way from Afghanistan to Antarctica. And so it's neat to see the variety of mission sets and actually then culminating, you know, at this point in time coming here, then being able to see all the different kinds of assets and how they get utilized around the world. I mean, we've sent out a C-130 tail that needed to go down to Christchurch, New Zealand. So a C-17 came and picked that up to help out the National Science Foundation mission Mm -hmm. that goes to Antarctica all the time various things I've done in Afghanistan. So it's just amazing to have the variety of assignments and then to look at it here. I do think it's kind of funny because our little girl came into our life. I was looking at getting out and uh, living with my husband because we've been married almost 12 years. Our cumulative time at the same address is almost up to four years. (laughs) (laughs) 
So it is kind of, you know, interesting to look back. And I, I was at Edwards, you know, the uh-huh. Air Force developmental test for the aircraft side. So there's so many different kinds of airplanes out there. And I thought, you know, wouldn't it be nice to be a group commander with just one or two kinds of airplanes? <laughs> you didn't get that. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't go more opposite than that if I come here. So I really enjoy it because, as you indicated earlier, it's all about the people that are here and the teamwork that we have and the pride they take in serving so many different customers around the world and being able to make a difference every day. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time. If you have more time, I would love to go out and see some of these aircraft. And if you need to hand me off, that's fine too. But thanks so much. Absolutely. Thank you for coming. You're welcome. All right. Big thanks again to the Davis Monthan Public Affairs Office and everyone involved with making this interview work out. That includes the 309th AMARG folks and, of course, Colonel Regen Barnard. Hope you learned something from that. I certainly did, as I mostly do from every interview. And after that interview, we toured many of the facilities the Colonel spoke of, including the A-10 wing shop, which was very interesting, and the F-16 line, which again broke my heart that they can't use those for something else, but I get it. We also toured the aircraft yard after that, and I found, get this, the last T-34 I flew in flight school before I found out later that I was qualified to fly jets. And then I found the very first FA-18 I ever flew. It was a B model at the FRS VMFAT 101 in El Toro, California. And we used to paint the name Christine on the side of it because it just broke down so much. It didn't have that painted on it anymore. It transferred from VMFAT 101 to a reserve F-18 squadron in the Marines. But it was out there and Got to take a look at it and a few pictures and a little video roll with my son Slater, who was out there helping me that day. You might remember him. He orchestrated the little Top Gun riff we used on a couple of different episodes. Anyway, lots of new acronyms and terms came out of that discussion with the Colonel. I confess I've gotten a little lazy with our website glossary lately, but I'll try to go back and add as many previous terms as possible, and I will redouble my efforts to add these terms as well. Well, we can transition now then to the wrap-up section. I always want to thank our newest Patreon supporters, and we have many this week. We're so proud and glad for that. We have Strike Leads Ian Mathewson, Tom Lorenz, Jevin Diva, Cody, Tim William, Jonathan Buswell, and Kevin Drummond. We have a new mission commander, Native Egosi. We have two new air bosses, Ogden McGowan and Matthew Brahms, who spends $101 a month and gets all the perks from that. But he added that extra dollar on there. I challenged him on it. He said he just wanted to be the uh, leading supporter and he's doing that. And we do appreciate it. I realize that's a lot of money, folks. These are trying times. I hope you appreciate what you get for it. And it's voluntary. So I do appreciate for those who are willing to do that on Patreon. Thanks so much. As a reminder, the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of myself and my guest and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. So that will do it for this episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take care, be well, and we'll see you next time here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. So long. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BVR Productions. Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to check out our website at fighterpilotpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. For exclusive Fighter Pilot Podcast content, check out our Patreon page. Please like, follow, and subscribe to the show. And don't forget to share us with your network. Thank you for listening.
thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.